Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, we're still doing this podcast remotely. Won't come as a surprise to anyone. And we now have the second week of sheltering in place behind us. And millions of students at both the K-12 and post-secondary level are out of school, or at least not on their campuses. And I don't want to forget the millions more of perhaps the most vulnerable of California's children, those between the ages of zero and five, whose childcare centers and preschools are closing or have already closed. Well, Lewis, there was a sliver of good news this week, potentially for them, and that's the $31 billion in federal aid for K-12 colleges and some money for preschool. That should bring in several billion dollars to California schools and universities and emergency grants for college students. Now, I say a sliver of good news because they will need more funding to cover what seems like an inevitable recession with possibly significant cuts to education budgets. But John, let me just clarify, those cuts won't be felt this year, right? I mean, it seems like the funding that's in place will get schools and colleges through to the end of this year, at least. That's right. They're still facing some expenses they hadn't anticipated, for sure. But yes, it's true. It's really next year. And of course, one of the big differences between the K-12 and higher education systems during this crisis is that the colleges are still open. Students are expected to take courses. They'll be doing exams. It's just that they'll be doing it from a different place. At least that's the current picture. Well, public schools are supposed to offer distance learning, too, under Governor Newsom's executive directive. But it seems unlikely that what they will offer will come close to the formal course offerings that that colleges will continue to offer. Well, talking about colleges, let's turn now to California's largest system of higher education, California's 115 community colleges. This week, we are very pleased to have on the line Community College Chancellor Eloy Ortiz Oakley. In fact, Chancellor Oakley tells us that the community college system is the largest formal system of higher education in the world. Its colleges run all the way from the College of the Siskuyus on the California-Oregon border all the way to southwestern colleges right on the Mexican border. The community college system is highly decentralized, Chancellor Oakley, I'm sure you'll agree that the community college system is now arguably more decentralized than it's ever been as a result of this crisis. I wonder if you have a message for the vast community college community that's feeling its way through this crisis. You know, my message is now is our time to step forward. And fortunately, all 115 colleges are stepping forward with all the challenges that they face. By and large, 99.9% of the faculty and staff that work at our colleges are focused on one thing, and that is to support the students that they serve. So I just want to say thank you to all of our colleges, to all of our faculty and staff for doing what they do best. So let me ask you, though, unlike the K-12 system, Mm -hmm. which is closed, I mean, now they are trying to do distant learning, so lots of questions as to whether students will get any grades, credits, so on, probably won't happen in Mm -hmm. most cases. But in your case, you are open for business. To what extent are the colleges able to provide distant learning? We have roughly two different types of situation going on right now. One is we've converted nearly 100% of the in-person instruction, the general instruction that leads to an associate's degree or transfer. We've converted almost all of that right now to some sort of remote learning platform. 
In some cases, that's totally online. And we also have the benefit of having the online education initiative and the California virtual course exchange that we had been working on since Governor Brown was in office. So that gave us a little bit of an advantage. But we've also, for those harder to convert courses, we've adapted other remote learning platforms, everything from Zoom to Skype. So our our faculty are really adapting in as many forms as possible. And then the other scenario is we still have to train first responders, and that requires some in-person instruction. So we're... You mean first responders like... Uh, everything from nurses to f- fire, police, emergency medical technicians. We want to ensure that we don't interrupt that workforce because obviously that workforce is being strained as we speak. So we need to keep getting those cadets out, getting those firefighters out. So there is some in-person instruction happening for the tasks that need to be done in person. We're just trying to follow California Department of Public Health guidelines and reduce the number of people that come together at any one time. You also have certificated programs, vocational programs, lots of hands-on learning, ideally. How, How are those being done? What is happening is this crisis is accelerating the movement we were already making to try and meet the future of work. As I've heard the governor put it, the future of work is suddenly now. So we're having to accelerate a lot of the uh, opportunities that we were looking at to virtualize a lot of the hands-on competency-based instruction. So we're using a lot of technologies that allow us to create these virtual classrooms. A lot of that was being experimented with, but we're having to significantly upscale it. And fortunately, we've been able to work with many of these companies to provide licenses and opportunities to all of our colleges. So we are in the middle of a huge upscaling experiment right now, and uh, we're hoping to keep the students engaged and to keep them learning and to keep them moving forward uh, and get them into the workforce, because we're going to need them in the workforce in the next couple of months. Many, perhaps most, of community college students are low-income students. Many of them are part-time. Many of them are working. Now, many of them will have lost their jobs because many of them are working in the service sector, Mm -hmm. What impact do you think this will have on their ability to take these online courses? In a way, they'll have more time, but they have other things on their minds at this point. How are you going to deal with that? You're absolutely right. Our colleges serve the most vulnerable populations in in all of higher education. And this crisis is exacerbating the challenges that they already faced. I mean, if you think about it, many of those communities, many of those families, many of those individuals still hadn't recovered from the recession let alone walking into this crisis. And so we're in partnership with many philanthropic groups like the College Futures Foundations that's raising money to provide emergency assistance to students. We're working with our own colleges and their foundations as well as trying to give them flexibility with the funding that they have so that we can offer emergency assistance to our students. We've also been advocating through the legislature and through the governor, as well as through Congress and the administration in D.C., to ensure that any relief package targets our lowest income students first, because they're the ones struggling the most, and they're the ones who we need to ensure get into the workforce as we start to recover. Is there any relief in the current bill that the Congress is considering? So we're taking a hard look at that bill. There is some relief. For, so, for example, there's student loan relief. There's additional supports that will go directly to colleges and universities. 
And there's unemployment insurance uh, support, things like that, that will definitely help our students. But there still yet, you know, lacks a real intentional targeted approach to the lowest income students. So we're hoping to continue to work with Congress to support additional legislation. But to Lewis's point earlier, keeping the students engaged is our most important job right now. We need to make sure that we communicate to them how important it is for them to stay engaged in their education. Because as we saw in the last recession, it's gonna be increasingly important to have some sort of college credential to gain a foothold in the economy that's being created as we speak. So we're trying to send that message out daily through statewide uh, efforts as well as local efforts. Some people do well with online instruction. Right. Many don't. You also need a quiet space. You need the technology. I'll just say, setting up this podcast, we're doing this remotely. It (laughs) took a while. (laughs) And I could see how a student would just give up. I can't do it. It's not working. The one thing I will say that is almost unique to community colleges, and this is true of community colleges across the nation, we have some of the most resilient students in America. I mean, these individuals have gone through uh, life situations that would make most of us cringe. And so I have great faith and confidence in our students that they find ways to persist. Now, we need to make it easier for them. So we've provided them, for example, uh, you may have read the LA Community College District, just passed out uh, hundreds of laptops to their students. We're working with providers of broadband to make free subscriptions available to students. We're passing out portable Wi-Fis. We're trying to do everything possible for students to be able to continue their education. And we're, we're hearing from them as well as to what they need. Do you have any sense at this point as to what percentage of students have been able to connect and are continuing their courses? So in many cases, colleges either moved up spring break or uh, shut down early while they converted. We have some examples of colleges that were already ahead of the game and already began to make that transition. And so, so far, we haven't seen a lot of drop-off. We're seeing some Uh, But we're not seeing a lot of drop-off yet. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be a big indicator of how successful we are because we're just going to be coming out of the week or two of shutdown that most colleges went through in conjunction with spring break so that they can gear up to offer instruction. So we're going to be taking a hard look over the next couple of weeks. Is there any thought about uh, going pass-fail or are any of your colleges doing that? Fortunately, in California, we have very clear lines of communications between all the systems of public education, uh, as well as the nonprofit sector. So I've been in contact with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman, as well as Linda Darling-Hammond, Janet Napolitano, Tim White. We're all having this conversation about pass, no pass. And I think we are going to go in that direction. We're gearing up in our system now. Of course, we need to make sure that the dominoes line up. Students shouldn't be penalized if they're transferring to CSU, UC, or private nonprofits. So I think that is all lining up very nicely right now. And so I think you'll see that rolling out in the next couple of weeks. We're talking with Chancellor Eloy Ortiz Oakley, who is head of California's community college system. And just for those of you who are not aware of this, I mean, we're talking about over 2 million students. I mean, not, not right. all full-time, but a mm-hmm. huge number. Yes, it is a huge number. And one of the other advantages that I think we have now is, you know, we recently created this fully online competency-based college called Calbright. It's now really showing 
us an opportunity to create a different type of education delivery through competency-based education. So we're doing everything to leverage that initial work that they created to be able to offer one more avenue to all of our other 114 colleges so they can deliver education as quickly and as timely as possible. When do you expect things to get back to normal, let's say? And you were quoted as saying that there's some fears or expectation even of a spike in August or September in the coronavirus. And you, right. you issued that caution. Mm -hmm. Yes. What I've told our colleges is that, one, we should expect this to be the new normal. And we should take the opportunity to create uh, a new education environment for our students going forward and use this as an opportunity because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. What we do know is that we're dealing with a virus that, uh, based on history, and you know, many of us have gone back to take a look at the documentary series on the 1918 influenza, and, and you can see what, what experts are talking about, that it is likely that this will come back again in the next flu season. So we have to be fully prepared to offer a whole host of learning opportunities. But this also gets us ready for any crisis, any disaster. And God knows we've had plenty of disasters in California recently. I mean, I've been the chancellor who has had to visit more burned down communities than any chancellor before me. And, and so this gives us an opportunity to create a new learning environment for our students that's more resilient regardless of what happens. Well, great to hear that. We've been talking with Chancellor Eloy Ortiz Oakley. Really appreciate your thoughts and really good luck in, uh, in the months you. to come. Thank you. And stay well. Appreciate it. You all as well. We've just heard from the head of one of California's three systems of public higher education. Arguably, the voice of students are the most important. Our producer, Kobe McDonald, and I are fortunate to have on the line today Marisa Martinez, who is the editor-in-chief of Cal State LA's newspaper, University Times. I encourage you to check that out. It's a very impressive operation they're running. And Marissa, how are you managing to do that virtually? The minute the school decided to cancel classes, go online, we all switched to virtual working, you know, working from home. We're all communicating via text, via Slack, via any other option, Zoom, obviously. So uh, we talk to each other daily as we would at the newsroom. We are a little bit of like a tight knit family. So it's unfortunate in that sense, but I think what came of it was really great. Our coverage, it just went full blown, all coronavirus all COVID-19. Everything that came from the school, all the information that came from the school was breaking news for us. When the classes went online, when they canceled all the events on campus, all the sports events on campus, we made sure to cover each and every one of those situations. And I imagine your students are really relying on you for that information. And have you been able to tell whether there's been an increase in the number of people actually going online to read you? Definitely an increase. Students are really, they really want to know what's going on. And sometimes they don't feel like the administration is doing that enough for them. So we try to do our best to make sure that we're focusing on what students are dealing with. Given the reporting that you've been doing and all of your colleagues have been doing, how would you characterize the challenges that students at CSULA are facing right now? A lot of the students relied on the resources that were available at the school, whether it be food, computer labs, the printers that were available there. They've been struggling with the switch to online 
because some of them don't have Wi-Fi at their own home. Some of them don't have computers, even uh, laptops, desktops. Those are not available to them in their own homes. On top of that, some do not have a quiet space to be in their classes. There's a student I spoke with. Uh, his name is Chris Torres. He lives in a, a single room apartment with his mom and his siblings that he has to take care of. He called himself the man of the house and he drives his mother around for groceries and, and medication. He takes care of his siblings and their homework. And on top of that, he needs to take care of his own homework. He doesn't have any Wi-Fi that he can use except for his neighbors, which is spotty. So he's been using the data on his phone to connect to some sort of Wi-Fi. So there's students like that who, who really needed the safe space of school to just continue on a, on a daily school schedule. We understand that you're also working on a profile of a student who's in a particularly precarious situation, but who's also working to advocate for other students who might be in similar circumstances. Can you tell us a bit about that? So Christina Zatino, she has been couch surfing since 2016 when she started school. And this transition for her was, uh, she said it was emotional. When COVID-19 came out, she had to check in with the people that she stayed with on a regular basis to see if they were still available to her. Two out of the three still are. The third one, I, I believe there was a an elderly woman uh, in that living space, so she had to opt out of staying there. On top of that, she started a petition to end the semester early and have students pass either just with a just a regular pass uh, for the semester or end on the grades that they had uh, mid-semester. Is she getting any traction with the petition? It originally was supposed to have uh, 2,500 signatures. That was the first goal. It's now surpassed it. It's above 5,000. She did not expect the amount of signatures that actually came of it. The next steps are to write a letter to administration to see if there can be something done about this with the backing of all, of all these students. Do you think that for many students, they will just say, I just can't do this right now, and I'm just not able to complete school this semester, and perhaps due to loss of income, they're questioning whether they can come back in the fall. I haven't heard of anybody who's not thinking about coming back in fall, but there has been the discussion of just dropping it, dropping school completely this semester. For the seniors at our school, it's been a big issue because they've been working so hard for their degree. And what literally, it's almost like tripping at the finish line. They don't know if they're going to uh, get the, the value of the education that they paid for. And that goes for every student. But for the seniors, their commencement is now canceled for the semester. There's a lot that's lost here because of COVID-19, and students are definitely feeling it, whether they're graduating or not. It's something that every student's thinking very deeply about and whether the semester is worth it. We've been speaking with Marisa Martinez, editor-in-chief of CSULA's student newspaper, University Times. Thank you for your excellent reporting and keeping your community and others informed and Best of luck to you for the rest of the semester. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. John, you failed to mention that Marisa is an active participant in EdSource's new College Stringer Network. It's an important way we hope to stay in touch with students during this period when none or very few of them are on campus. Speaking of networks, we wanted to alert you that EdSource this week will be moving ahead with creating what we're calling EdSource's Community Network. 
It consists of people around the state connected to education, and they'll be a source for EdSource, sort of our eyes and ears on the ground during this really unprecedented period of disruption of education in California. Yes, John, we face the challenge of figuring out what is happening throughout California, throughout the state, or as Governor Newsom has referred to it frequently during the pandemic, the nation state of California. So we would encourage all of you listening to join the network. It's completely voluntary, and we promise we won't bug you too often. We'll be sending you an email shortly with more details, or you can email us at edsource at edsource.org if you want to participate. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald, who did some interviewing for us this week. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And most importantly, Stay well.